Uh, we're going to do uh, the second in a two-part series. The first was the United States and Bible prophecy, and the second will be the mark of the beast. How many of you would like a, a very quick, like, three-minute recap of the United States and Bible prophecy? All right. Well, there's enough hands. I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. So, in Revelation chapter 13, we read about a beast, and that beast is, is uh, described as um, having uh, features of a, a lion and a bear and a leopard and all these different creatures and this terrible beast, right? And it has seven heads and ten horns. All those different features were mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, those features illustrated different nations. A beast in Bible prophecy represents what? A nation, right? So, uh, each of those different beasts in Daniel 7, the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the, the terrible beast um, represented Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. And then the ten horns that came from the, the last beast represented the ten kingdoms that Rome ended up breaking up into. And, uh, and so this beast in Revelation 13 is a composite beast, and it kind of sweeps that history from Babylon all the way up till the end of Rome, and then, and then it has the ten, uh, crown, uh, ten horns with crowns on them. And those are, again, representing the ten kingdoms, but then it says one of the heads, that, which ends up being the, the same power as this little horn, um, one of the heads of this, this beast um, is given a deadly wound. And we, we read or studied on Wednesday night that the little horn in Daniel chapter 7 and then this beast in Revelation 13 ruled from 538 until 1798, and that was the, the Roman Catholic Church is the, the, the religious power that was then given political and civil authority in 538. And then in Napoleon's time, when the French Revolution was at its height, um, Napoleon went throughout Europe and he swept out the Catholic Church from the civil governments in, in all of Europe, and then he deposed the Pope and took him captive in 1798. Well, then the Revelation 13 goes on to describe a new beast, and that new beast is a, uh, a different kind of beast. It's a beast that has two horns, and it says, like a lamb. And those two horns don't have crowns on it compared to the crowns that were on the horns in the first beast in Revelation 13. And so we can, we can see by that that it's, it's not a, uh, a monarchy. It's not led by a king. Different kind of, of civil authority. Um, and it's a lamb-like beast. And there's about a, dozen, a couple dozen times that lambs are mentioned in, in the book of Revelation, and only once is it not about Jesus. And so this is a lamb-like beast, a Christ-like beast. The, the civil government ends up being somewhat Christ-like. So the, uh, the other characteristic is that this um, beast with two horns like a lamb comes up out of the earth. And uh, if a beast represents... The, uh, the, a nation and winds represent national strife and war. What does a sea represent? Do you remember? People, lots of people, multitudes, nations, tribes, tongues, right? So, so we're talking about a populated area for the first beast that comes up out of the sea, out of Europe, out of a populated area. But the second beast is coming up from the earth, the opposite of that. It's another place in Revelation 12. It talks about the... the um, the wilderness. And the wilderness is the, the place that people don't live. And so the earth coming up out of the earth is coming up out of a place that's not very populated. So it, it comes up out of a place that's not very populated. It comes up after this first beast, which ruled until 1798. So it's around that end of that 1700s that we should find that this second beast is rising up. And it's a beast that has a Christian foundation. And of course, uh, we look at, at nations that rise up around the end of the 1700s that are, have a, a Christian foundation, have the lamb-like uh, features of liberty and freedom of conscience. And uh, what nation do you end up coming towards? <laughs> Not Iran. The United States is the logical conclusion. It fits every characteristic, and it's really the only nation that does. And, uh, and then it says that that nation would then do something. It says that it has two horns like a lamb, but then it speaks like a dragon, and that the conclusion of that, that beast, it would have worldwide power because it would cause everybody in the world to worship the first beast. It would put the first beast back into power, 
that um, little horn power from Daniel 7. Um, it would put it back into power, and it would cause all who don't receive the mark of the beast or the name of the beast um, to, well, to not be able to buy or sell and ultimately to be killed. So, that was, that, that's kind of the depressing part of the study on the United States and Bible prophecy because it means that the, the, the heart of this nation will be changed, and it will speak like the dragon, which of course is the devil. So, the next question is, what is the mark of the beast? So, why don't we pray, and we'll begin talking about that subject. <coughs> Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for truth in your word. Sometimes it doesn't look pretty, but I'm grateful that you don't sugarcoat things. You tell us about what we can expect so that we can prepare ourselves. Give us, give us the confidence today to put our trust in you, and I pray that you would sustain us in, in all our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The mark of the beast. What is this mark of the beast? They first started turning up in Michigan, a little place in Michigan. These counterfeit $20 bills. They were the best counterfeit $20 bills anybody had ever seen. These were made by a man named Frank Burasa. Burasa had done his homework. He bought paper milled in Germany and Switzerland. He bought equipment from China and he set about to literally print his fortune. He printed $250 million in $20 bills, and amazingly, he only was fined, when he was finally caught, $1,500, and he spent six weeks in a Canadian jail. Pretty good deal, $250 million worth. I mean, these were really good quality $20 bills. People said that you could not tell the difference they just looked so good. And the key to a good counterfeit is that it looks like the, like the real thing, exactly. And it's not always easy to tell between a counterfeit and God's genuine article as well. Satan is a deceiver, and his goal is to, is to deceive us. And, and he doesn't deceive us by showing us the opposite of what God wants. He deceives us by showing us something that's close to what God wants but a substitute nonetheless. And in earth's final days, the Bible tells us about a convincing counterfeit to God's truth, something that's going to convince, well, most people in the world. And that's how it introduces this idea of the mark of the beast. It's the, the culmination of a great battle between Christ and Satan, between good and evil. It's something that began long ago when Lucifer said in his heart, I will be like the Most High, and he coveted the place of God himself. He wanted rulership, he wanted leadership, he wanted worship. He wanted God's worship. And his quest for worship will ultimately be brought to a close over one issue, one focus. And, and it's the issue that will demonstrate whether we trust in Jesus or whether we trust in ourselves or in Satan, if you want to go to that extreme. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be two groups of people, and only two groups of people. And maybe this is a bold claim, but I, I think it's pretty clear because the Bible talks about it over and over again. I mean, they, they're the, um, uh, the, the people that are on the left hand and right hand of God, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And in Revelation, we read about those who have the mark of the beast and those who have the seal of God. Two groups of people. You either, you've either taken a stand for God or you've taken a stand on the other side. And, and we see how solemn this decision is in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 10, when this third angel, we keep coming back to these three angels in Revelation 14, this third angel says this. He says with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You either receive the mark of the beast and experience the final punishment, the lake of fire, or you follow God and receive the seal of God. 
those are your options. It's, a, it's, it's probably the most serious message in God's Word. Now, if God is warning us about something so serious, do you think He would leave it to chance that we would just guess what the mark of the beast might be? Or do you think God might tell us what it is? I think God's going to tell us what it is. That, that's my suggestion. So let's dive in and let's figure out what is this mark of the beast. There's a lot of ideas, and honestly, they boggle the mind. Um, I was uh, talking with somebody recently, and, and uh, you probably have talked to somebody about this kind of thing, and uh, they might talk about the, the, the chips that people are putting under their skin in Florida. I saw it a few years ago, and it was a big deal. I mean, even secular news sources have this in there, and... and and they've got this question almost like, is this the mark of the beast? It's, it's something that's a big enough conspiracy in our, in our culture that anything that, that might be in the hand is a big question mark. Maybe that's the mark of the beast. Maybe it's, maybe it's some barcode. You've heard that one before? Or, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's uh, a debit or credit card. Maybe it's Bitcoin. Have you heard that yet? Oh, that's, that's the modern one. Now, what's the cost of refusing the mark of the beast? You can't buy or sell. That's Revelation 13, 10 or 11. And, and so if, if you can't buy or sell, that's, that's the uh, coercive mechanism, economic sanctions are the coercive mechanism to try to force people to get the mark of the beast. So uh, when, you, when you can't buy or sell, you're not going to be able to feed your family. You're going to have to uh, maybe shut down your heating in your house or, or um, you know, you're not going to be able to, uh, to do basic things. Electricity will go out. Uh, that's going to be pretty compelling. People are not going to want to be without those conveniences. And so it's a coercive mechanism. And while we have all of the mechanisms in place, whether it's mobile payments or credit cards or bank accounts or whatever, we have all the mechanisms for the economic sanctions. Those mechanisms do not represent the mark of the beast. And I think the devil would really like us to think that they are the mark of the beast because it takes our focus and, and puts it onto something that, that some conspiracy scariness rather than focusing it on the heart issue that really is at the core of the mark of the beast, and that's the issue of worship. Okay, so a beast in prophetic symbol is what? A, a kingdom or a nation. And uh, so, you know, the eagles, the United States, the lion, great bitten, the kiwi is the New Zealand, you know, every nation seems to have a, uh, the, what is it, Russia is a bear. Every nation has some... Uh, symbol, some beast symbol connected to it. And, and as we went through Daniel chapter 7, we found um, that all these beasts um, culminate in the little horn power and, and are reflected in the first beast in Revelation 13. And this first beast and the little horn in Daniel 7 um, have some of these characteristics. First, um, it was little. Daniel 7, 8 says, it comes up among the other ten horns that came out of the kingdom of Rome, those ten nations in uh, in Europe. It, it replaces three of them, right? It plucks up three of them. It comes after those horns, um, and those horns would have been established around the time that Rome was, was collapsing in 476 AD. So, this nation had to start after 476. Um, it, it, like I mentioned, destroys three of the first uh, ten nations. It has eyes like the eyes of a man, so it has a human leader. It speaks great words and blasphemies against God. It persecutes God's people. It thinks to change times and God's laws, and it reigns or rules for 1,260 years. So this is the, the foundation for that. And we, as we looked at this, we discovered that this nation that's being described, this little horn that rules for 1,260 years, is none other than the Vatican City, the Roman Catholic Church. And while some may be surprised to hear that today, that's not something that would have surprised people, well, even 100 years ago. Um, but especially not in the time of the Reformers. Martin Luther proposed that. John Knox, John Huss, John Calvin, John Wesley. There were a lot of John Reformers, weren't there? They all believed that same thing. It wasn't, it's, it's not a, a new thing to suggest that the Roman Catholic Church fulfilled these prophecies. It's pretty clear in history that it did. When it comes to this question of the beast, the issue of the number of the beast comes up quite a lot. 
So let's talk about 666. Some think that the mark of the beast is 666, but the Bible literally says that it's not the mark, it's the number of his name. And now, what does it say after that? It says it's the number of his name, but it also says it's literally the number of man. Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. There's a couple ways that you can look at this, and I'd like to look at both. Um, one, and I think it's the most significant for the issue of the mark of the beast, um, is that this connects to creation. Uh, this, the, the creation week took how many days? Well, I gave you a clue when I said it's a week. Seven, Seven days. Now, what did God create at the very end of the sixth day? What was the God's crowning act of, of, of the creation of, of, of earth? Man was the end. It was the, the end of his creation because on the seventh day, he rested, right? He, he finished his work and he rested on the, on the seventh day. Um, and so, the, the number seven in the Bible is the number for completion. That's finished. That's done. That's, that's God's number. That's perfection. But the number six in the Bible is consistently, and even reflected here in this verse, it's referring to mankind. The number six is man's number. And so when you see 666 and the Bible says his number is the number of a man, you, you got to think this is talking about a substitution, a counterfeit. God's perfection is being substituted for man's ideas. So this is, I think, one of the most significant points in uh, the, the issue of the numbering 666. But there's another application because we saw that the little horn had um, all these characteristics, nine characteristics. We'll just add 666 to that list and call it 10. And so 666 becomes the number of a man. And, uh, and what man would that be? Well, the beast had the eyes of a man. So let's look and see what that might be. The second application would be um, this one. In the history of the Catholic Church, the Pope has many titles, and one of those titles has been Vicarious Feli Dei, and, and that means Vicar of Christ, um, Christ's representative on earth, the one who stands in the place of God, however you want to interpret it. There's lots of ways that it can be interpreted in, in the English, um, and, and I don't want to put too much weight on this. It's, it's not the mark of the beast, and it's just... It's just an identifying mark in this application. But if you take, of course, vicarious filii is Latin, and if you take those words, uh, vicarious filii and you break them down into the numbers um, or into, into uh, letters, you can see that they have a, a numeric value. So let's just give you a, a test, see if you remember your grade school um, Latin numeric values. Um, what does X represent in, in uh, Latin? 10, good. What about V? 5, nice. What about C? 100. Okay, good. So let's look at these. Vicarious would have the value of 112. And then phili, now keep in mind some letters don't have any numeric value in Latin, so we'll just skip those. So phili has 53 and day has, well, 501 because D represents 500. Now, you might say, Jason, that's all nice and good, but um, your name might end up equaling 666. And there's been quite a few people that have pointed to that and, and said, well, so-and-so must be the Antichrist because his name adds up to 666. Just for the record, only one letter in my entire name has any numeric value, and that's the D in my middle name, Andrew, and so I'm, I'm 500, I'm good. I am not the Antichrist. <laughs> no, seriously, you can't have one identifying characteristic. You need to have them all. So the fact that, that 666 ends up being the title of po the Pope is just icing on the cake, honestly. Like I said, don't put a lot of, um, a lot of, of stuff into this one. Um, it's just one more thing to add to that figure. So that's one application, like I said. 
The, the other application that's connected to creation, I think, is more closely tied to the issue of the mark of the beast. So let's think. With the first nation in Revelation itself being a religious institution, do you think that uh, the mark of that institution would be religious in nature? Would it make sense for the mark of that uh, authority um, to be religious? Keep in mind, uh, what is a mark? What's a mark? Well, the mark is connected with, with um, uh, like, well, for instance, you might put your mark on a document. What would that mark look like? It's your signature. Well, back in the day, it wasn't a signature, it was a seal. Well, let's look at, at uh, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3. Um, I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Notice it says, all the world marveled and followed the beast. And then in verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him. And in verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the, la of, life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has a he an ear, let him hear. So this is something God wants us to understand. It reiterates it over and over and over again. The issue is about worship. The issue is a religious issue, not, not just a political or, or um, a legal mark or something. So, so we're not talking as much about an, a, a thing, right? As if I was going to put the mark of the beast on this podium here and say, please don't, you know, don't take the mark of the beast. That's not a good thing to take, right? No, no we're talking about something that's, that's deeper than that. It's not a physical thing as much as it is an issue of your heart. Who has your heart is the question that's at the end of time. Who do you worship? Who do you follow? Revelation 7.3 says this interesting thing that contrasts with the mark of the beast. It says, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. God is doing something similar to the beast. The beast is marking his people, and God is sealing his people too. So, what is your forehead? Well, maybe I should ask this. What's behind your forehead? Your brain. But more importantly than just your brain, because there's different parts of your brain, what's, what's in the front of your brain? It's called the frontal lobe. It's the thing that you you make choices with. Somebody said the executive part of your brain. It's, it's the thing that, that allows you to reason. And I would suggest that this in the front of your brain is the place that God wants to connect with you. Because God, He asks you to make a choice. Like Adam and Eve in the beginning, He says, choose, who will you serve? He doesn't want forced worship. He invites our will to choose Him. When God wants to seal His servants in their foreheads, He wants our hearts, our minds, He wants, he wants our, our emotions and our reasoning to say yes to Him. That's His goal. So what, what is God's seal? Remember I, I asked what a, a seal is or what a mark is. It's something that you use to say, I authorize this. Typically, a, a seal is going to be used in a government, because we're talking about nations here, beasts and whatnot. So, a seal is going to be used in a government situation for significant documents. And what, what is the, how does a nation speak? It, it speaks with its laws. How does a nation identify a law as authorized by that nation? It stamps it and says, this is, this is from us. Okay, so there's a seal connected to laws. God has laws too. And, and when He is looking to have our minds, He's really looking to do something with the law. And, and I think that God's seal is tightly connected with His law. The plan is really a beautiful plan, a significant plan. Look at Hebrews 8.10. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make. That's a covenant is a law, like it's a it's a binding agreement, a relationship that's based on a legal term. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God's seal is supposed to be in your mind. God's law is going to be put into your mind. What is it that gives God's law authority? What stamp is on God's law that says that it's actually God's and not from somebody else? And, and, and then another question, and probably the one we should answer first, why does God deserve our worship? I, you might say that he, he deserves worship because He loves you, but lots of people love you and they don't deserve worship. So let's take that off the table. You might say, well, it's because He died for me, and that's probably part of the reason, but no, it's not the ultimate reason. He's the Creator. He made you, and therefore He deserves worship. All the things that, well, let's look at Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So it's not, a, it's not a piece of wood, it's not a rock, it's not a piece of really precious metal that's worthy of your worship. The only thing that's worthy of your worship is the one who created you. That is not a reason to have your kids worship you. <laughs> Ultimately, God created them too. Just, just uh, don't get ahead, uh, too, too big of a head, parents. Every seal has three key components, and some have a little bit more. This on the screen is a, a notary seal, and uh, you can see on there, there's a name, Emily Warren, and, and then it's an office or a title, notary public, and then there's a dominion. That's just the area that she has authority in, in this case, Forsyth County, North Carolina. Um, in this seal, she also has a date associated with that. So this is uh, a, a seal that will expire at some time because she has authority from the government only for a period of time until um, August 5 of, of that year. Now, in, in God's... Well, this is actually common for seals from the beginning of our understanding of seals. We uncover seals all the time, and all of them have some form of these three components. And so if God's law is the thing that seals us, so to speak, that goes into our, our minds, then what is it in God's law that authorizes God's law as coming from Him that says, I'm really the one that gave this? So let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10. And, and we'll, we'll read these verses and then come back and look and see what is it in this verse that identifies it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, now jump forward to verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Okay, so he, he, he identifies himself as, I am the Lord your God. Who created, who made, heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in, is in them. So all of these things, oh, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So all of these pieces of the seal are there, bound up in the, right there in the heart of the Ten Commandments, right in the middle, in the Sabbath day. It, it says um, that the Lord God is the one who is authorizing this law, these Ten Commandments. It says that He's the creator of heaven and earth, which... Creator is his title, and what is his dominion? Heaven and earth. All, all the, that uh, is in them is his dominion. So I'm the Lord, I created everything, and, and, and I have dominion over it all. Therefore, I am worthy of your worship. So the issue in the end of time is what? Worship. And so if, if God is establishing himself as the only one worthy of our worship, then it seems like this would be the heart of that worship. Ezekiel 20, 12 says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies him. So not only is it a sign of creation, God's power and authority to create, but it's also a sign of his redemption that he sanctifies and redeems us. God made us. 
God remakes us into His image. And again, in Ezekiel 20, 20, hallow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. In Romans 4.11, write that verse down if you want to look it up later. Romans 4.11 says that a sign and a seal are the same thing. He equates the two. And so if the Sabbath is a sign of God's authority in our lives, it's a sign of His redemption and sanctification, then it's also a seal of God in our hearts. Now, before you say, oh, this is, this is kind of legalistic, I, I need to I need to give you an idea of what legalism is. Do you mind if I, if I do a little teaching about what legalism is? Because it's, it's important. When we talk about laws, the idea of saving ourselves um, has to come up. Is obedience to God's law legalism? Well, let's look at that. God said to Abram, Abraham and Sarah that He would give them a, a baby. It was going to be a covenant baby, and that baby was going to fulfill God's God's covenant promises to Abraham and Sarah. And so, Abraham is like, all right. And Sarah is like, ha, whatever. I'm old. I'm infertile. No way. And so, a little while later, uh, they don't have kids for a bit. And Sarah says, you know what? God's promise needs to be fulfilled. Let's, let's help this along. And she brings her handmaid. And a little while later, a baby is born. Was that baby, Ishmael, was that the baby of promise? No, it wasn't. No, it was Abraham's child, but it was not conceived according to God's plan. That was man's substitute. And in, in uh, providing a substitute for God's plan, Abraham and Sarah were being legalistic. They were supplying their own obedience in their own way for God's design. Later, they had faith, and they trusted God. They, they repented, and God gave them a baby. Was that baby according to promise? Yes, it was God's design, and it was their faithfulness and obedience to God um, that brought that promise. All right, so if that's the child of promise, then let's just look at this idea of keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. Is, is that legalism, or is that faith? In order... To have faith, it's, it's key that you're obeying God. You can't, you can't obey your own plan and end up in God's, in God's plan, right? Faith is trusting God's Word to do what it says it will do and, and obeying God in what He's already said. Is it legalism to be faithful to your spouse? No, <laughs> not at all. So when God says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, and you say, yes, I've got a perfectly good Sunday here. I'm going to keep the Sabbath on Sunday. What you're saying is, thank you, God, but I'm going to substitute my plan. I think it's a little better. And, and that is legalism. But if you say, on the other hand, um, the seventh day is a Sabbath, and it's a sign of my faithful relationship with God. I'm going to honor God by keeping the Sabbath holy. Then what you are doing is exercising faith. James says that you will know faith by your works. When you're faithful to God, you're trusting God's Word to do what it says it will do. Mark 2.27 says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God gave us the Sabbath, not as an onerous uh, law that, that we have to keep in order to be saved. No, God gave us the Sabbath as a gift, as a sign of His saving us, of His grace and His goodness and His, um, his, his uh, creative power. And, and it's that seal of our relationship with Him. When we say yes to God in that way, then He says, I love spending time with you, and He is enabled by our faith to transform our lives. So, now that we understand what the seal of God is, let's jump over and look at this mark of the beast. Revelation 14.9 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. 
And verse 12 adds, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Obedience and faith are connected in that one too. So we see those who keep the commandments of God are not receiving the mark of the beast, which uh, implies that those who do not keep the commandments of God are going to receive the mark of the beast. Do you see the contrast? What, what's the alternative to keeping God's law? Hmm. So the mark of the beast has something to do with worship. It has something to do with God's law. What does the first beast or nation do in Revelation 13 to affect God's law? Do you remember? Do you remember one of the identifying marks of that first beast? It thinks to change times and laws. Daniel 7.25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High or blasphemy. Shall, he shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change time and law. So what the mark of the beast um, is, is distinguished from God's law by this idea of changing God's law. So what, what is the mark of the authority of this first beast? What's the mark? What's the thing that identifies this first beast as worthy of worship in contrast to God? And, and I guess the, the question that you need to ask is, what do they say the mark of their authority is? It would make sense to ask if the Catholic Church has something that it says the mark of the authority is, well, let's ask them. So let's look at uh, Exodus 28 just to remember. Um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, how, did God, how did Rome change God's law? The Catholic Catechism says, which is, question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. In addition, in the... Uh, Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and, the Fun and Fundamentalism, on page 38, he says, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. It wasn't God's plan, it was the church's plan. Rome changed the worship from God's Sabbath to man's Sunday, from the seventh to the sixth. You see where 666 comes in? Hmm. And, and this is well known. It's not uh, a mystery. This isn't something that I cooked up in, in my little closet waiting for, for you to come in and, and, and throw something um, in there that supports my particular belief. This is something that lots of people know. Um, in fact, in about 20 years ago in Algon Algonac, Michigan, uh, the uh, church there said this. It, it was in one of their little papers. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day of the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the Scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. It goes on to say, people who think that the Scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists. You know, it's really saying if you're going to follow tradition, that's Sunday. If you're going to follow the Bible, that would be the Seventh-day Sabbath. Cardinal Gibbons wrote these words, reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Pope Benedict XVI said, sine dominico non possumus, and I probably pronounced that wrong. Translation, without Sunday, we cannot live. Wow. It, made, it makes more, uh, more sense when you think about this particular mark of the beast. When you see the mark of the beast's authority is its, its uh, statement that it can change the law from Saturday to Sunday, then uh, when Re Revelation 13.8 says that it compels all who dwell on the earth will worship him, it kind of makes more sense. It's pretty worldwide today, isn't it? Do most people who honor God or say that they honor God worship on Saturday or do they worship on Sunday? 
It wouldn't be hard to enforce this kind of a law. In Matthew 15, 9, Jesus says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And you ask, how can this be so wrong when everybody's doing it? And I have to ask you, is, is the majority very often right? Popular opinion is not the place to find truth. In fact, if you were part of the crowd when Jesus came the first time, you would be yelling, crucify Him, crucify Him. Popular opinion is, is not the best thing. But the counterfeit looks a lot like the real thing. It looks good. It doesn't look terrible. The mark of the beast is, is really quite simple. When you accept a change in God's holy moral law, you come to the place where you end up rejecting the sovereignty of God and exalting the opinions of man. The true Sabbath is God's people coming into communion with God. The mark of the beast is a counterfeit. Human beings choosing their way above God's will. Paul wrote, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? That's uh, Romans 6, verse 16. And maybe this surprises people, this idea of Sunday being the mark of the beast or Sabbath being the seal of God. Um, and, and you may be like, but I, I didn't know this all my life, but that, that's okay. It's better to know the truth later than never, right? But I need to assure you that, that nobody has the mark of the beast right now. Nobody has the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast is only taking effect when it's become an enforced law. At this point, it is maybe imprudent, certainly against God's Word, um, but, it, but it's not yet the mark of the beast. Some people, they, they, think, um, they, they think this issue uh, is, is not that big of a deal, especially the Sabbath. Um, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But let me just go through a scenario for you. Let's say I was going to go to a busy street corner. I lived in Manhattan for a few months, uh, four or five months, back in 1999, and uh, there is some really busy street corners, and they, these guys will set up booths and, and uh, have these little speakers, and it's kind of funny. Um, they'll, they'll have like rotating speakers, and some guy will talk for 15 or 20 minutes, and the next guy will get up, and the next guy will get up, and they'll, they'll do a circuit for hours. Um, but, but let's just say I went, and I was in New York, or maybe Las Vegas, where they have a bunch of people in a, in a crowd, and I came to a busy intersection where a bunch of people could watch, and I'm, I'm there on the sidewalk, and I, and I pull out of my pocket a piece of white cloth, and I wave it around for everybody to see. I throw it on the ground, and I, I stomp on it, and I rub my feet in it and get it all dirty, right? And then I take out a a, a, a red cloth, and I wave it around, and I throw it on the ground, and I stomp on it, and I, and I rub my feet in it, and, and everybody's looking, and they're thinking, eh, he's weird. <laughs> what is he doing? And they might be curious, and so I pull out a blue cloth, and I wave it around, and I throw it on the ground, and I stomp on it, and I rub my feet in it, and uh, you know, that's, it, would anybody be offended by what I did? They'd be curious, they'd think I was weird, but they wouldn't be offended. But let's say I take those same pieces of cloth, and I go home, and I wash them. And I, I sew them into alternating um, patterns of white and, and red stripes, and I put a, the blue uh, corner, like patch on the corner, and I, I put some white stars in alternating rows until uh, I have 50 stars there, and then I go back to that same corner, and I, I pull out of my pocket, um, that, that, that red and white and, and blue stripes, uh, I mean red and white and blue uh, cloths, and I wave it around, and I throw it on the ground, and I stomp on it, and I rub my dirty feet on it. Would anybody be offended? Why would they be offended? Isn't it just cloth? Yes and no. That cloth represents something, doesn't it? Does God's holy Sabbath day represent something? Is it just a day? Yes and no. Yes, it's just a day. comes right after Friday, every day of the week. But no, it's not just a day. It is a day with significant meaning. God has put everything about His authority 
to receive worship into the seventh-day Sabbath. He says, I'm your creator and I'm your redeemer. Worship me and me alone. It matters. It matters what we do with this. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, and I'd just like to say, you can't help but keep God's commandments. When you give your heart to Jesus, he promises to come in with his Holy Spirit and to will and to do of his good pleasure. Like he works in you to do that, doesn't he? He transforms your heart. He creates new desires in you, and, and He causes you to walk in His ways. He promises that in Ezekiel. He says that, that He'll put His law into our hearts. He'll give us His, his Spirit, and He will cause us to walk in his, in his ways and to keep His statutes. That's God's promise for you. You don't have to be stressing about it. You just have to be giving it up to God. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? We know that uh, while nobody has the mark of the beast now, there will be a point and at, at, at some point in the future, whether it's days or weeks or years, I don't know, but at some point in the future, this nation, the Bible says, will enforce a Sunday law, a law that will demand worship, worship of the beast and ultimately the dragon that gives power to the beast. And, and at that point... There's a choice. And, and who will you choose to follow at that point? And that's an interesting thought. God, God per, says uh, in the Old Testament that there was a death penalty for breaking the Sabbath. And, and, and theoretically, at the end of time, if the, the God says that those who worship the beast and receive the mark of the beast will receive the death penalty, the lake of fire. So it's, it's something that will continue to stay in effect. Now, how could this idea of a death penalty, well, a, a Sunday law at all, be something that happens. I mean, our nation, it doesn't seem like would ever enforce a Sunday law, would it? But Pope John Paul just a few years ago said, Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Rome is determined that legislation, laws passed, will set Sunday aside as a holy day. And the Bible, of course, says in Revelation 13, 16, and 17, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. What does this mean? The forehead represents what? We just talked about it with, with God. Decision, right? And, and certainly there will be many people who say, I believe, and they follow the beast with all of their hearts, willingly. God, on the other hand, he doesn't, he doesn't have two options. He only, has, he only has willing obedience, doesn't he? So what's this hand idea? If it's different than willing obedience, what is it? What, the hand, it represents what you do, right? With my mighty hand, my mighty right hand, God says. It's the actions that he's describing. I'm powerful to do something. And, and so when we look at the hand, he puts his mark on our hand. We're talking about... Mm, well, maybe I don't believe, but I, I'm willing to do it because it's convenient, it's expedient. I'd rather w keep a, a Sunday holy, even if I don't believe God at all, I'd rather keep Sunday holy than not be able to buy and sell, right? There's going to be people who are in that position. Maybe they don't agree, but might as well, better than the alternatives. When that time comes, and you're facing, you're facing a, a penalty, loss of income, uh, lack of ability to purchase things, maybe even facing death, where will you stand? I'd like to ask a better question because I guarantee you that you cannot answer that question until you answer this one. Where do you stand today? You see, today is the day that we build our tomorrow. Today is the day that we set up our future, and if we stand with Christ today, then we'll stand with Him tomorrow too. 
If we refuse to stand with God today, then do you think we'll choose to stand with God when the going gets tough? No. One last Bible story. Cain and Abel were at the garden, just outside of the Garden of Eden, and uh, Cain, well, God had commanded them to bring an offering, an offering of a lamb. And Abel brought a lamb to the altar, and Cain brought his fruits and vegetables. God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. And uh, Cain was furious, and by the time the dust had settled, Abel's body was lying in the dust. And God placed a mark on Cain's forehead so that, well, he didn't want anybody to exact retribution uh, for what Cain had done. Cain did not worship according to God's will. He received a mark as a result. And down at the end of time, we have people who choose to worship against God's will, and they're going to receive a mark. The beast will do that work, um, not God. It's not about laser beams. It's not about silicon chips. It's not about um, economic systems and uh, mobile payments or bitcoins or anything like that. It's about the issue of worship. Who has your heart? Who do you love? What means more to you, earth or heaven? Your possessions or your God? During World War II, a U.S. Army transport ship, the Dorchester, was um, traveling in a convoy on its way to Greenland. It was taking some troops, some U.S. troops into Europe, and it was a treacherous waters. A German U-boat ended up uh, shooting a torpedo at the ship and sinking the ship. And as it was coming down, uh, the men were getting into their life rafts, and there was four chaplains, a Roman Catholic, a Jew, and two Protestants. And they, they had their life jackets on, and they were helping other men get into the boats. And in the confusion and the chaos and the sinking ship, they, not all the life jackets were available. And it was apparent that some men would, would go down with the ship. And so these chaplains took off their life jackets, and they gave their life jackets to four soldiers who were able to get into the life rafts and escape. But those four men, they, they huddled around each other, they sang and they prayed, and, and they gave their lives for those four men. Whatever the situation looks like, our sinking ship of a world and the future that looks kind of grim, Jesus has given His life so that we don't have to die. He's given us a life vest, so to speak. What a sacrifice. And the question I have to ask you is, what will you do, dear sinner, for the God who's loved you so? Will you choose your way? Will you choose the way of tradition, the doctrines of men, or will you choose God's plan? and give your heart to Him. Will you let His love take full possession of your life today?